0: Paramedic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Hello everybody, welcome again to another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. This is Dr. Casey Patrick, and today uh, we're lucky to have a special guest join us on the podcast. We're going to talk about some uh, pediatric pearls here with Febrile seizures and the relatively newly coined brewery, for for the listeners. And we have Dr. Manisha, who is a pediatric emergency medicine physician at Texas Children downtown. He's also involved with EMS research uh, with the PCARN group. So we've got a uh, an expert joining us today that will hopefully really take some of the fear out of these patients. You know, sometimes I really feel like in especially in the febrile seizure case and, and the brewery as well, what when I was trained was was an Alti, and we'll we'll get into that in a little bit. But a lot of times the families can be the most stressful f- part of these patients, just because their level of concern and their level of, you know, uh, sort of how wired and, and ramped up they are is much, much higher than the actual clinical concern that we have for the patient. And sometimes that can create a disconnect. And again, we'll we'll, we'll address that as we move, move through the talk. But Manish, let's start with the basics. How do we define and classify febrile seizures?
1: Sure, yes, thanks for the question. Uh, Febrile seizures are really seizures that occur in children ages six months to six years in the midst of a fever. And so the abrupt change in body temperature is really what triggers the seizure. As a result, many parents do not realize that their child has a fever until after the seizure has already occurred. And so if a child is less than six months old or over six years old and has a seizure that occurs in the midst of a fever, that is not a febrile seizure. However, children with a prior history of seizures in the absence of fever
0: do have a lower threshold to have a seizure when they have a fever or other signs of an illness. So just, just to take, take it a couple steps forward, a lot of times in these patients, you know, the family is concerned about brain damage and, and long-term injury and, and, and the like. And just, you know, for the EMS listeners out there that may not know sometimes the next steps that occur once these folks arrive at the ED, you know, for a simple febrile seizure... Uh, the workup is pretty straightforward, correct? We're treating these folks really just like any other febrile kid, especially, you know, recording in the, in the, uh, in the fall, probably the first cold snap here in, in the Houston area. So it's that URI sort of time. Um, but really, there's not a whole lot in the simple febrile seizure patient that we do beyond, you know, fever control and uh, bacterial illness workup that's really relatively standard, correct? Correct.
1: Yes, that's correct. Uh, The simple febrile seizure, which is really a a, a seizure that's lasting less than 15 minutes in the midst of a a fever in a child, six months, to six years old, um, the majority of the time uh, that is due to uh, a viral infection. And so uh, in children who are immunized um, and who are over six months of age, Uh, very rarely do they have a bacterial cause uh, for their fever. Um, uh, Sometimes they can have a urinary tract infection in small babies, uh, but it's very rare in the immunized child who's had at least several rounds of vaccinations for them to have a bacterial infection in their blood or uh, to have meningitis if they otherwise, otherwise look well. And so For the child with a febrile seizure, oftentimes when they get to us uh, at the hospital, um, oftentimes they're back to their baseline uh, once we see them. And so uh, that's often reassuring. But um, if they're not, then uh, we may do further evaluation. But really, it's uh, the task that we have when we uh, see these patients in the emergency department is to find out. What is the cause of their fever? Because it's the fever that caused the seizure, and 99% of the time, the cause of that fever was a viral
0: infection that will go away on its own. So let's let's talk about the one percent. You know, if we just call them all viral febrile seizures, we're going to be right most of the time. But that's not the game that we play, right? We're we're searching for the needle in the haystack. So when we talk about that one percent, or I mean, uh, just for estimation's sake, that small number of these folks that are something beyond just viral URI type febrile illness, what are some of the red flags for quote unquote badness when it comes to febrile seizures? What are the, what are the things that you're looking for when you see the kid and say, oh, this is more than just, you know, an adenovirus or rhinovirus or influenza or whatever? Sure.
1: You know, when I, when I talk to parents about this, uh, I, I emphasize that the majority of febrile seizures are not worrisome. Uh, most of them resolve on their own in less than five minutes without any intervention. But when a febrile seizure is more concerning is if it's associated with other signs or symptoms, such as if they have neck stiffness that we can see after the seizure has stopped, or they don't return to their baseline within several hours of having the seizure, or the seizure is going on despite getting several doses of a first line agent, like a benzodiazepine, like midazolam or, or lorazepam, and also requiring another dose of a second line agent that we may give in the emergency department. Uh, if, if they're having ongoing seizure or they're having neck stiffness, or they're not coming back to their baseline within a few hours of the, the seizure that has resolved, then these may be features of like a central nervous infection, uh, such as meningitis or encephalitis.
0: And I would just you know throw in for the for the medics listening out there other other red flags. Sometimes that I think about in these patients related to social situation, concern you know uh, concern for non accidental trauma or abuse you know neglect. Uh, there's always should unfortunately be on our radar uh, when we're when we're seeing uh, sick kids. And I think that it's reasonable to just at least consider your surroundings. And consider the, the tone of the room and the tone of the parents. And any time that we're seeing a, a child who's unwell, that may not be, you know, easily explainable. You know, you may think, oh, this is a febrile seizure. And then you take the temperature and it's, you know, you're 98, 9. And it's like, oh, wait, maybe there's something else going on. So I think it's always, always, always advisable to think about the social and, you know, non-infectious sort of uh, non-accidental trauma neglect. Unfortunately, those things do exist, and oftentimes, when we are in the homes as the EMS, you know, pre-hospital providers, we have a window into that social situation that, as put my ED hat on, that I, I may not have, you know, Dr. Shaw may not have in the ED once the patient arrives.
1: Absolutely, and you know, you bring up a good point about the unique opportunity that uh, that folks in EMS have on the scene to see things that we don't see in the emergency department. I would say. when it comes to a seizure with a fever, a fever uh, is usually due to an infection. And that's, uh, I would say, almost never going to be a sign of uh, abusive trauma because you can't fake a fever or you can't make a fever happen unless, except in rare circumstances where a, a caregiver may have intentionally infected their child. So I would say that would be unusual. But if you have um, a child that has a seizure without a fever, then yeah, there can be multiple causes for that. And sometimes uh, children can seize as a result of uh, abusive head trauma. Like if they have a head bleed as a result of abusive head trauma, then absolutely um, that should be considered, especially when uh, the story doesn't quite make sense that the bystander is giving to to you as the the EMS provider on scene. Uh, And so when I do training for EMS providers in in my area, what I tell them is uh, your role is to, you know, first take care of the patient, but also if you have a suspicion for abuse to uh, notify law enforcement, to document what you see, uh, to preserve the evidence on the scene, and then to communicate when you do transport that child to the hospital, communicate to either the the nurse or the physician that uh, is receiving the patient, uh, so that you convey that concern that things don't quite make sense based on the story that you heard and what you're seeing.
0: So move, moving us in sort of to a little bit more of the the social realm of these patients, because, you know, a, a seizure for especially, you know, a non-medical parent uh, can be one of the more concerning things to see in, in your child. And we've, as we've discussed, oftentimes it's a result of you know, rapid increase in, in body temperature, mostly due to viral infection. So the end outcome in these folks is generally going to be, you know, non-eventful, positive 100% total resolution relatively quickly. But most time, most of the times, in my experience, the parents are in much worse shape than the children. So talk to us, Dr. Shaw, about some of your go-to scripting uh, to help reassure moms and dads, grandmas and grandpas in these you know, admittedly stressful situations. And I think that from my own personal standpoint, the worst thing that we can lead with is, you know, a dismissive, oh, this is no big deal. We see these all the time. Your child's going to be fine. Uh, I feel like that from my standpoint usually should come at the end rather than the beginning because the, they're so ramped up. I think folks can take that as almost, like I said, almost being dismissive. So how do you, how do you start that conversation? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yes, absolutely. I believe that uh, acknowledging a parent's concern is essential because to them, they just saw something really scary that their child has never done. And so I think that as the healthcare provider, staying calm myself is essential while also acknowledging their concern and that helps set the tone. And especially if this is the first time this has ever happened to their child with in in terms of a febrile seizure, I tell them that what they observed probably did seem scary since they've never seen their child do that before. But then I also go on to say that, although it may have looked worrisome to them, the majority of febrile seizures are fortunately not worrisome. Uh, And then what I do is I, I explain that the reason for the seizure was the fever. And the reason for the fever in majority of cases for immunized children is a virus and it will go away on its own in about a week. Uh, I also let them know that it's not the height of the fever that triggers the seizure, but the abrupt change in the temperature. And therefore, there's really nothing that they can do or even I can do to prevent the febrile seizure from happening. And that even includes giving medications for fever like acetaminophen or ibuprofen. Uh, But I do let them know that although their child may have a one in three chance of having another seizure in the midst of a fever in the future, that they'll outgrow that uh, after age six. And then I I walk them through steps of what to do if if another one happens again. Uh, Because I think that uh, really the scary thing for for a bystander is when they're seeing a child in that situation, uh, they don't know what to do. And so I tell them, Uh, I I break it down into, I think, some simple steps. What I tell them to do is to first make sure their child's laying on their back, and I tell them to lift up their child's shirt to check if they're breathing. And if they're breathing, then the next step would be to look at their lips and ensure that they are normal color, nice and pink. And if they're pink, then I tell them to look at their watch and start timing the seizure. And the reason I tell them to do that is because most seizures – are often overestimated by a bystander. They seem like they're uh, longer than they really are. And so I tell them to either take out their phone and start videotaping it, or to look at their watch and to time it. Uh, And I reassure them that most febrile seizures will stop in less than five minutes, but five minutes, if you're watching somebody seize, can seem like a really long time. And so what I do tell them though, is if their child is not breathing, their lips are blue, or the seizure has truly gone on for at least five minutes, then any of those are reasons to call 911. And I tell them that it's better to call 911 in that situation than coming in their own car because EMS has oxygen, equipment to help their child breathe, and medication to treat a seizure if needed that they don't have in their car. And even if they they know CPR or something like that, they can't focus on that while they're driving.
0: Yeah, it's probably not the uh, not the safest driver when, when, when your kid's in in distress, so I don't think I want that one pulling out behind me in the intersection. A couple, couple things I just want to uh, reiterate there for the listeners that I think are important, just kind of knowledge points for us all when we're, you know, kind of the front lines dealing with these uh, febrile seizure patients. It's so common, and, th- and again, this time of year, they're, they're coming. You know, febrile seizure patients are at risk for having febrile seizures again, like like Dr. Shaw said, one in one in three will have a repeat episode, um, so that's that's pretty pretty common. So I think that's a good warning to give the parents. The more important warning that I like to tack on the end of that one, or not, maybe not the more important, but I think what's probably more important to the parents is that there is really a negligible risk long term epilepsy or continued seizures after that six year sort of you know growing out of it, uh, so to speak. So realistically, are they going to have long term issues? Uh, very very rarely can they have another febrile seizure yes so I think setting that expectation is is good because it allows the parents sort of kind of be relieved that okay we may have to deal with this between year three and year six but you know college and and job prospects and all those things are are uh, are, are just the same and these things are really common and and we grow out of them because sometimes I feel like that's the, the biggest concern that parents have
1: yes that's a good point that you bring up is that uh, it is important to reassure parents that, uh, that that their chance the chance that their child' is going to have uh, a, a chronic seizure problem after the age of six is uh, quite rare and uh, the chance that they're going to have any sort of long-term uh, brain abnormality or dysfunction as a result of having a brief seizure is uh, also quite
0: rare so that gets us to sort of this, again, this this time of year where these, you know, anytime the viral illnesses are, are going around, uh, the reason that I group these two topics is I feel like that they kind of occur the same time of year because oftentimes the underlying cause can be the same. And secondly, these are two group of pa- patients with, you know, uber concerned, uber ramped up parents that oftentimes when EMS arrives on the scene, the patients tend to look fine. So the fever and the seizure is often, you know, the, the fever may still be there, excuse me, but the, the seizures often resolve when we arrive. So changing gears to the artist formerly known as Alti, I've got to show my age. I learned it as an apparent life-threatening event. Uh, that name has since been changed to, to Brewery. Um, so I will lead off with what's up with the name change. And to all those out there who've learned this as Alti, is there anything new with Brewery, B-R-U-E, that we need to be aware of?
1: Yes, I, too, also uh, learned it as the apparent life-threatening event, or ALTI. Uh, I've been taking care of children for 18 years, and so that was the term that we used when I started my training. And so an ALTI uh, was a term that was created in the 80s uh, at a consensus conference on infantile apnea, and it was created to replace the term near-miss sudden infant death syndrome, or near-miss SIDS. And so it was defined as an episode that was frightening to the observer and characterized by some combination of apnea, color change, mark change in muscle tone, choking, or gagging. So the term ALTI was created to differentiate these events from true sudden infant death syndrome, or things that looked like it would result in sudden infant death. But because of the subjective and nonspecific nature of that definition, many clinicians or pediatricians felt compelled to perform tests and hospitalize patients when it was often unnecessary and also not likely to lead to an actual diagnosis. And so recently, as you mentioned, in 2016, the American Academy of Pediatrics published a clinical practice guideline that really redefined Uh, these types of events with a a more specific definition and so the term brief resolved unexplained event uh, or some people call it brew some people call it brewy was created to describe events in infants less than one year old during which the observer reports a sudden brief and resolved episode of at least one of the following four findings so a color change like cyanosis or pallor, uh, irregularity in breathing, or even absent or decreased breathing, uh, change in muscle tone, such that the infant is either hyper or hypotonic or altered level of consciousness. And so with this more specific definition of a brew, uh, relative to the old ALTI definition, healthcare providers can better differentiate which children are at a higher risk for requiring further investigation, monitoring, uh, and or treatment based on evidence. And so what also is important to note is that bruise have resolved, as opposed to an ALTI, which still could be ongoing or may have resolved. The, the R in that definition is that the episode that was observed by that bystander has resolved. And so therefore, if you have an infant in front of you who does not appear well when you arrive on scene, then that's not a brew because it has an resolved. So the infant who became apneic in the setting of fever, cough and congestion, um, uh, uh, those are kids that probably have bronchiolitis or pertussis, but that's not a brew either because there's a potential explanation for what occurred. So if you have an explanation, that's not a brew either. You need to have a resolved event that was short, where you don't have an explanation.
0: Taking this back to, you know, the the febrile seizure patient and, you know, sort of our our role in EMS as pre-hospital providers, because, you know, the combination of these two topics may not make obvious initial sense to to the listeners out there. And just so you can Understand my maybe disjointed thought process here, but with a brew and with a febrile seizure, you know we got the six months to one year where these two have age overlaps, and the patient in both situations, by the time we we arrive, may look fine. The parents may have seen something really concerning, so these two may end up on your differential in in this you know in a single patient. And the situation where I see that being really important that we know both of these sort of uh, diagnoses, we know a little bit about the the pathophys behind them and sort of the you know the treatment and and the red flags is that you know the parents super concerned, the patient may look well. and then there's the question of, well, they're well, do they need does parents want to refuse at that point? Is that a potential potential option here? And I think you know, listening to, you know, listening to Dr. Shaw's discussion of both febrile seizure and, you know, ALTI or brief resolved unexplained events, you know, while most of the time it's going to be a viral illness or some other unexplained, you know, non-emergent finding, there's things like meningitis, encephalitis that are on the differential. There's bronchiolitis and pertussis that are on the differential. There's non-accidental trauma that's on the differential. And again, once these patients get to the ED, we have more time and more resources and more, you know, radiology and lab testing if that's needed. You know that that's easy to sort out. But on the scene, that can be really difficult. So I, I me personally, you know, for the MCHD listeners out there. These are not patients that I would, in any way, shape, or form, no matter how good they look when we arrive. If you're considering brew or you're considering, you know, febrile seizure, these are ones that we definitely want to to advise uh, trans- transport to the hospital. And on that note, Manish, why do why do these matter? You know, what are what are some of the major major concerns with with brew? we mentioned, you know, some of the things that are, you know, on the febrile seizure list. Obviously. Uh, uh, infection, especially in young children, is always going to be high on our list. What are some of the others?
1: Sure. And, and uh, you know, I'll go back to one thing you mentioned uh, before I get into why these matter. Um, uh, you know, one thing you mentioned was the age overlap. And although the, the brief resolved unexplained events uh, are defined as events that occur in a child less than one year old, and the febrile seizures, the six-month-old to the six-year-old, Although there is that age overlap, really, usually when we see a brief resolved unexplained event, it's, it's usually in the, in the smaller infants. And so I, th- I really do think about these as two entirely different things. And so you know, specifically about the brief resolved unexplained events, uh, what is concerning about them or when can they be concerning? You know these matter in some situations because the occurrence of a brief, resolved, unexplained event might be a sign of a serious underlying condition, such as child abuse, like we talked about earlier, congenital abnormality, so things that that baby might have been born with that weren't yet diagnosed, a, an actual seizure disorder um, that might be a chronic condition, uh, a metabolic disorder uh, that the child may have, or sometimes an infection. And so the uh, infants that had a brief resolved unexplained event that are considered to be high risk based on the research that has been done on these episodes are really kids who are less than 60 days old. So less than two month olds, uh, kids who were born premature, uh, at less than 32 weeks. So they were born, uh, you know, at at less than seven months uh, of gestation. Um, And um, if you correct their gestational age, it's still less than 45 weeks. So basically them, even though they were born premature, one month out from what their due date was supposed to be. Or if they received CPR by a trained medical provider that happened to be on scene or in a, in a doctor's office or had an event that lasted for a long time, like more than a minute, or, um, they've had more than one of these before. Um, and I think that last one is, is, uh, I think a a real red flag, because if they've had more than one of these before, uh, at least in my experience, that is often one concerning to the family member and it does need to be addressed. uh, um, and second is, uh, sometimes these can be subtle signs of a chronic condition. And so, uh, but patients to meet at least one of these criteria that I mentioned, less than 60 days old, born premature, uh, less than 32 weeks, got CPR by a trained medical provider, had an event that lasted more than a minute, or have had more than one of these events in the past, uh, really do require further evaluation. and. Um, what that evaluation is can vary depending on the signs and symptoms that, that the child had uh, uh, preceding or during the event.
0: I think that's good take-home for the, for the listeners out there, and most of these realistically uh, are a relative common sense, but I think important to hit one more time, the very young, the very early, the longer events, multiple events, and again, for a chronic issue, you're not going to have one episode, right? You're going to have repeated episodes, so uh, the 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 chronic recurrent, and then obviously if somebody got CPR, I think everyone's uh, antenna goes up. And again, not CPR from grandma with no medical experience, because we all have seen uh, wide awake folks getting CPR from from non medical individuals. And and g- yeah, listen, good on good on you out there for uh, for giving it a shot. But from the uh, risk stratification standpoint, I'm not kn- knocking anyone who's who's aggressively, uh, learns and, and wants to, bystander CPR is another, another topic for another podcast that we have coming, but, uh, CPR by a trained medical provider in a, in a patient that needed it. So I think those are, uh, good ones for us to, to tuck away and sort of have in our back pocket to, to, uh, know, Hey, this, this is, uh, you know, this is a little, little more than the normal.
1: Right. Yes. Bystander CPR and a person who had a cardiac arrest absolutely saves lives. Getting bystander CPR in a non-trained medical provider in the presence of a brief, resolved, unexplained event does not make that event high risk. So
0: that being said, when we're taking care of these these kids, let's. We'll, we'll lump them together just for discussion's sake in that, you know, realistically, the febrile seizure patient that we, the two years old, that's got a viral illness, that parents freak out, call 911, rightfully so, the child's having a seizure, uh, wouldn't tell anybody not to be freaked out about that if they hadn't seen it before, uh, but when we arrive, the patient looks fine. The same situation, the child coughs, chokes, uh, stiffens, turns pink, turns blue, loses tone, uh, you know, insert your insert your brief resolved unexplained event there. Uh, old old school alti. We arrive and the patient is cooing and looks well. You know, of, oftentimes there may not be a whole lot to do in these situations. Where should our focus, from a treatment standpoint, where should our focus be in the pre-hospital setting when we're when we're transporting these kids?
1: Sure. I think you know. Although, as I mentioned before, I think of these as very different things. I think, as you mentioned. Uh, the one thing that is definitely common is there's a bystander who's calling because they're really concerned about this child. And so I think in healthcare, when some when the lay person is is asking for help, I think it's important for us as trained medical providers to uh, provide that reassurance to them when we know that uh, what's going on probably is not a worrisome thing. And so it's an opportunity to provide reassurance. Uh, and and that can help have a calming effect on them. Um, But it's also an opportunity to provide education because for the febrile seizure, like we talked about earlier, it can recur. And so knowing what to do in the moment is necessary. And for the brief resolved unexplained event, uh, it's also an opportunity to understand what occurred to decide uh, what else needs to happen. And so, Specifically for a febrile seizure, uh, if that's still ongoing when EMS arrives, then the crew should treat it just like any other seizure. And I emphasize that when I teach uh, paramedics is that a febrile seizure and a seizure without a fever should be treated exactly the same in that the the first goal is to stop the seizure. And the way to stop that seizure is by giving a benzodiazepine. And so many uh, EMS protocols protocols have options for intranasal or intramuscular benzodiazepines like midazolam. And so the best available evidence says that uh, giving a dose of 0.2 milligrams per kilogram of an intranasal or intramuscular benzodiazepine like midazolam uh, is actually faster uh, at stopping the seizure than trying to place an IV in the back of an ambulance on uh, a child that has little veins. And so, uh, but febrile seizures don't need to be treated differently than seizures without fevers. And since most seizures have stopped prior to EMS arrival, however, uh, like I said, EMS providers have an important role to play in providing reassurance to the bystander uh, that their child had a very common thing happen to them. Uh, It's most likely not worrisome, even though it may have looked scary, but that transport to the hospital to be evaluated by a physician is best in that situation. And for the infant with a brief resolved unexplained event who appears well on EMS arrival, the main issue that may arise is when the parent may not want the infant transported anymore to the hospital. And so a child who has any of the high risk criteria that that we talked about earlier uh, definitely warrants evaluation at the hospital. So all effort should be made to encourage the parent to consent for transport, especially if uh, the patient has high risk criteria.
0: Perfect. I think that's a great spot to wrap us up. As always, if any of the listeners out there have questions or concerns, you can email us at the podcast email, podcast at mchd-tx.org. And again, I'd like to thank Dr. Manish Shah for joining me this morning uh, to discuss pediatric febrile seizures and brief, resolved, unexplained events. It's that, it's that time of year here with the weather changing and viral season coming coming along. So thanks, Manish, for joining us. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you. We will link up some review articles in the show notes on both of these topics. So if anybody wants to dive uh, deeper, they can. And as always, thanks for listening. We'll be talking to everyone again soon. This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas production and editing by Andrew Adams.
1: Questions or comments, which are always welcome to podcast at mchd-tx.org make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts music copyright kevin
0: mccloud and compotech.com licensed under creative commons by attribution 3.0